Okay, here we go with Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Let's start with the fire in Maui and the death rate continuing to climb there now. So 55 55. confirmed dead in Lahaina and likely to go even higher. Mm -hmm. Um, The videos, the pictures are absolutely devastating here. you got to really feel for the people there. And it's very hard videos to watch. It, it really is. It's just heartbreaking. And for a lot of people in British Columbia, you got a personal connection here to Maui. Oh. They vacation there, they own property there. Yeah, I know Maui's a favorite. I mean, this is that's our Caribbean. Is, yeah, right. It's the West Coast Caribbean, right? So, yeah, yeah there's a lot of personal connections uh, to Maui. And, uh, and many people have visited this uh, destroyed town site. So, yeah. yeah, there's a real BC connection there. And one of the things that went through my mind as I was looking at those photos of this town that's basically been wiped out. It reminded me of Lytton, mm-hmm. right? Two years ago, how fire flattened the town of Lytton in B.C., and now a similar experience in this town in Maui. And I thought it was kind of an interesting contrast. At least the tone of what we're hearing in the United States to the response to this disaster to compared to political reaction to the Lytton disaster. So let's listen to Joe Biden here, okay? The U.S. president here in the aftermath of this fire promising federal assistance. Let's listen. We have just approved a major disaster declaration for Hawaii, which will get aid in the hands of the people desperately needing help now. They've lost, uh, anyone who's lost a loved one whose home has been damaged or destroyed is going to get help immediately. And then he goes on to describe how the head of FEMA, Mm -hmm. the the Federal Emergency Response Agency down there in the United States, was dispatched immediately onto the ground in Maui. He says the full resources of the United States government is is ready to go to help people. Now, we'll see like it, how quickly people get help there compared to what we saw in Lytton over well, the last two years. They've got a different structure down there where the federal government has a much bigger role in these types of disasters. So you, and they've got a lot more experience. I mean, they have hurricanes. Yeah. You know, they have tornadoes they're just a, and they're of regular occurrence. Um, the federal government down there was massively involved in the response to Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy, even though they were criticized. Yes. In some areas for a lack of timely response. You contrast that to this country. So in B.C., the, the, the Lytton uh, fire exposed a flaw. You just had Tyler Olson from the Fraser Valley Current on yes. about Highway 1. He's, he's actually the go-to reporter when it comes to Lytton for the Fraser Valley Current. He did a great piece about four months ago why the whole th- rebuild went wrong in Lytton is that so much of our relief program is designed to let the local government lead the rebuild. Well, what happened in Linton is there's no local government. The, yeah. the, the government, the town disappeared. The government disappeared. The, the, the town records disappeared. Yeah. Then they got shoved into this vortex of bureaucratic uh, competition between the feds and the province, where the province has one set of rules for environmental assessment and, and such. And so First Nations there, because they're under federal jurisdiction, were able to rebuild quicker on reserve lands. On reserve land, yeah. rather than uh, the town of Linton. So I think Tyler had a piece a couple months ago that the rebuild has finally started. Yeah. But this is a, this really exposed a flaw where, yeah, the, some money is promised, some resources are promised, but then it sits there because the town is expected to lead the rebuild. When, the, when there's no town, who does it? And that yeah. was the problem with Linton. And there's still no town, right? No. Like, it, it's still a desolation wasteland there. And like you said, there's been some rebuilding has begun. But man. Two years. Now, now we'll see. Maybe maybe two years from now, Lahaina will still be 
will still well, be in well, the same and, situation. And, and, but I don't know. Just judging from the the tone of Biden, it, I found different. Well, yeah, and it's you know, but you're not going to see Lahaina built with all wooden structures again. Yeah. That's one thing. Climate change is is uh, you know, even Lytton was promised to be rebuilt, albeit differently. Right. With modern, to more resistant, more resistant yeah. uh, buildings. Well, we haven't seen anything resistant yeah. built in Lytton, period. But we'll see going forward. That's what John Horgan promised. He actually went there like a week after and said, we're going to rebuild this place and it's going to be built on modern, uh, on modern style and fire resistant. But again, a host of reasons came into play why Lytton is just sitting there still. No, no. And Jackie Taggart, local MLA, she's been banging the drum on this for two years and keeps yeah. asking the questions on the ledge and not really any answers yeah. why this is sort of stuck in the mud. Right. And here's the other thing, and this was reported by Global News last night, that for businesses, for people who lost their businesses, their businesses burned down, they received some disaster loans from the federal government. Now it's two years later, nothing's been rebuilt, and the government wants their money back. Yeah. Right. So they're saying, like, okay, it's time to pay back the money. And people are saying, well, well nothing's rebuilt. Can you give us an extension? Maybe you could forgive these loans. Like, this is an absolute disaster. Have a listen to Megan Fendrich here, who is a Lytton business owner, lost her business. And here, here she is talking about the loan repayment demands from the federal government on these disaster loans. And you'll hear her reference the, the federal uh, finance minister here. Let's listen. For all of us Lytton business owners, we're all struggling. Um, and so I laid out my situation and then didn't hear back. And it was over a year later that we finally heard from Christian Freeland's office that, oh, no, we've done enough for Lytton. We've done enough for Lytton. Now, the federal government is saying, well, they put $13 million into the, the Lytton disaster relief. But, you know, this is a government. And Trudeau was in Hamilton the other day with $45 million to repair one apartment building. So, yeah, $13 million chump change. You know, talk about replacing an entire town. I think that her particular situation, classic bureaucraties, tone deafness, uh, not realizing, I mean, I, I doubt someone actually said we've done enough for Lytton. I just that would be pretty crass yeah. for for anyone to say that because they haven't done anything for Lytton because nothing's been done there. Yeah. And again, my maybe money sitting there, maybe some promises sitting there, but the the structure is flawed in that it requires the people who are no longer in charge and don't longer have access to city records and all this stuff. All that infrastructure is gone, and if you depend on that to really to lead the rebuild, it's not going to happen. I'm kind of surprised that Trudeau hasn't taken uh, a more high-profile role in the, just as a symbolic effort to rebuild this town. I mean, this is a town that was wiped out. This is a province where Trudeau has lived here. He's worked here. He's currently on vacay right now mm -hmm. in British Columbia. And here we have a BC town that's wiped out. And two, two years later, there's very little been done. Well, I'm so, not sure it'd be a magic photo op right now for any politician to go to that place because yeah. all it would it would raise questions about why hasn't anything been done yeah. here for two years. Yeah. But well, okay. interesting to see what happens in Hawaii. So let's you know check in a year from now. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see what I happens. think the feds have a better track record when it comes to this stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about. Um, you mentioned briefly Highway One, so that the the widening project of Highway One through to the Fraser Valley. We talked about this earlier on the show, and then of course it's going to include. An HOV lane, okay, so a high occupancy vehicle lane, and it will include part of the provincial program on electric vehicles. So if you have an electric vehicle, you can use the HOV lane, even if you're not high occupancy. If it's just the driver, just one person in the vehicle, as long as it's, as long as it's an EV, you can go on that HOV lane. So we talked about that. Now, people who own HOVs, or, or they own electric vehicles, they hate it when I'm talking about this issue. But have a listen to the leader of the Conservative Party of BC here, John Rustad, on this point. 
the privilege of being able to use a high occupancy vehicle lane um, for electric vehicles, I think that should come to an end too. High occupancy vehicle lanes should be for high occupancy vehicle, regardless of the vehicle. But currently, our, our, what we have in the province is if you drive an electric vehicle, you don't have to have high occupancy. You're allowed to use an HOV lane. Okay, you think he's got a point? Oh, I think he's got a point with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, very few people. Unless you have, own an EV. And well, very few people have an EV. Yeah. The vast majority of the population do not have EVs and aren't going to get one anytime soon, even though the government has set this, this target of 90% of new vehicles uh, by 2030 or 2035 have to be EVs. But there's no evidence to support that we're going to get anywhere near that for a host of reasons. And when an EV is costing, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, that's pretty elitist. And if you're gonna say the elitist drivers out there get special access to this lane when others, even though they um, uh, are not given there, just because one driver in an EV, nice high flying vehicle gets access to that lane, I think most people are gonna have a problem with that. Now on the other side of it though, I got an interesting email from a, a driver on this issue recently who said, I drive a gas powered vehicle and I have no problem with the EVs going into the HOV lane because then they get out of my lane. So go ahead and use the uh, use the yeah, HOV, and then you can that. get you can you reduce the congestion where I'm trying to drive. Again, I don't think we have enough EVs <laughs> to make that sort of dent in the impact in the traffic yeah. on, on highways. Now, if we get to the point where we've got way more EVs, sure, maybe that would have an impact. But right yeah. now, we don't have enough EVs. Well, it's an incentive for people. It's another one of the government incentives that have been put mm-hmm. in place for people to transition to an EV. This is why they're doing it. You know, yeah. like people are saying, well, they're not high occupancy. Well, that's not the point. It's a climate change issue. They're trying to get people into EVs. You know, there's a lot of skepticism and, and contradictions associated with EVs. I think you just had Rustad on talking yeah, about, yeah. I don't know if you mentioned, like EVs leave a pretty big environmental footprint when it comes to the mining. He did say that. When it yeah. comes to exploiting child labor in yeah. some of these Chinese mines and, and Congo mines, which yeah. everyone sort of turns a blind eye. As long as you produce the battery, the minerals yeah. that I can make my battery and, sh- and drive my shiny EV in the HOV lane, that's all fine. So uh, again, there's a lot of skepticism attached to EVs. And there's also an argument why are we replacing one car with another car? You know, why not put that money into mass rapid transit? Yeah, right. You know, that's the other argument. It's Baldry's Beat. Lots of calls. Dean in Kelowna. Hi, Dean. Go ahead. Hi, uh, Mike. Uh, great show. Uh, Keith, I'd like your comment on this. Uh, do you think Trudeau is going to resign before the next election? Does he see the writing on the wall? And does he see this as an opportunity with his uh, marriage and his relationship as a nice way to exit before the, you know, go to election and cause he's going to get shellacked. Yeah. I'm not going to get into his marriage or anything like that, but I think the odds increase every day that he's likely not to seek reelection. Really? Hasn't he said he's running again? Well, but what else can he say? Yeah. You have to say that. Mm. I mean, Pierre Trudeau said he was running for reelection literally a week before he took that proverbial walk in the snow. Yeah, well, a politician right. cannot ever say, I'm thinking of maybe packing it in. As soon as yeah. you say that, you're done. Yeah. So he's, he's trying to leave his options open for sure. Yeah. I'm not saying he's not going to run, but I think the odds now, I mean, every poll that comes out, the last few polls, Abacus, Leger, um, Nanos, all have a significant lead for the conservatives. And also it's uh, starting to tear down with the so-called red wall in Atlantic Canada, which is sort of the barrier yeah. preventing the conservatives from ever forming a majority. Yeah. And now it seems to be crumbling, where the conservatives are in a dead heat with the liberals there now. The conservatives are now starting to—I haven't seen any of the urban-suburban breakdowns. We talked before, if you don't win Greater Toronto, 
Greater Montreal, Greater Vancouver, you're not going to form a majority. But Poliev seems to be on the cusp of approaching that territory. Yeah. But again, we need need some more detailed um, uh, breakdown of that. Now, having said that, we've still got a lot of time to go before the next vote. So there's time for Trudeau to rebuild. But I think his image is, I don't know if it's sort of become entrenched along very negative lines. And once you do that, I mean, we talked yesterday about Poliev's makeover. Right. I'm not yeah. sure Trudeau can do a makeover. He's been in office in power for eight years. He's already defined in, in defined. a lot of people's minds, right? Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure you can you can redo it. Polev's a relatively fresh face. Yeah, and at first, that what he was doing really wasn't working. Now he's trying a different tack. And They're trying to trying to sand off some of those hard edges there. Yeah, Polyev. and he's got time to do that because yeah. he doesn't have that track record. He doesn't have that long record in front of the public. Right. Um, and Trudeau does, and that's going to be harder for Trudeau to remake. Himself. There's also, if you think about some of the issues that are top of mind for Canadians too, like cost of living, inflation, the soaring interest rates. I mean, people are just struggling to get by in a lot of cases, so that's not good for an incumbent government. Although it's interesting in BC, uh, we've talked about this before, same weird situation in BC. Um, Angus Reid poll and a number of other polls show top issues, as you mentioned, cost of living, housing, crime, yeah. uh, health care. The NDP government gets about an 80% failing grade in BC. Then they're asked, how would you vote? 47, 25 NDP. So, again, that shows you. Incoming governments, I think, are afforded a little more slack. But the problem with Trudeau is he's more than an incumbent. He's an eight-year incumbent. And that's where it becomes a lot more problematic for him. So, to his point, I think, you know, if you had to bet, well, I wouldn't want to bet. Because he is also very stubborn. And he's very, very sure of himself. He's on vacation in BC right now. Maybe he's doing a little thinking. Walking the sand. Thinking, yeah. Uh, Regina in Abbotsford. Hi. It's Regina. 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 Sorry, go ahead. No problem. Um, I'd just like to underline what Keith had said. I think getting people out of cars might be the better solution. I know when I went to Toronto uh, about 50 years ago, it was like being in heaven with their transit system. Of course, they've let it go now, too. But if you can get a hold of the city plan book that uh, Vancouver put out in the mid-90s, you'll see that uh, the citizens are way ahead of the politicians. They wanted the kind of transit that only now is starting to come. And uh, they looked at it regionally because even though I, living in um, Abbotsford at the time, I was uh, allowed to contribute, it's transit that we need. And, you know, as soon as we get the young folk in transit, and good transit, uh, cars can be a um, secondary choice. Thank well, you. It's interesting. If you live in Metro Vancouver, everyone knows driving in Metro Vancouver is a pain, and it's, a, it's arduous. So just imagine if every single car in Metro Vancouver suddenly was an EV. How would that make your life better? Still going to have congestion. Still going to have a congestion. Now, it may not you know, uh, have well, obviously nowhere near the number of greenhouse gas emissions, almost zero. But So that solves one problem. It doesn't solve the congestion problem. Just replacing yeah. one car with another, another car. So that's why there's increasingly advocates for more. You've got this um, train group resurrecting itself, train to the valley, yes. uh, wanting to kickstart the conversation on that. All transit is subsidized. So why not subsidize even more transit rather than just to push to EVs? Malcolm in East Vancouver, you got 30 seconds. Well, you just about took my thunder. Uh, year, for years, I've been saying that centerpiece on the Transcanon from Surrey out to Abbotsford, perfect land for a light rapid transit. Yeah. You, yeah. You're building for the future, uh, but we don't. We build for today, the same as what they're doing with the, Port, the Patella Bridge. You're making four lanes. Yeah, yeah, they got an extra. Should have been eight lanes with proper turn on and runoff, and the same with the that bridge across the uh, with replacing the Massey. It's so yeah. lovely. Have a good day. Happy Thank- weekend.
Thanks for the call. You're yeah, 20, the knock-on trains, they don't pay for themselves. Well, no transit really pays for itself. That's why it's subsidized. The West Coast Express, as far as I know, still gets subsidized, even though it's very popular. Um, again, I think the case is made could be made for more transit, significantly more transit, rather than just thinking EVs is the magic solution.